Welcome to the Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota podcast. Safe Passage for Children's mission is to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. This series of episodes will take a closer look at our short weekly policy blog, or eBrief. If you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Stick around for this week's eBrief podcast episode featuring Safe Passage for Children's Executive Director, Rich German. Amish sexual abuse. What happens when community is more important than children? Garments of 13 sexually abused children were exhibited last month at a convention of, quote, plain churches, unquote, which include Amish, Mennonite, and Brethren communities. As reported by the Associated Press, the display included dresses and hair coverings for four- and five-year-olds and even a onesie. Investigative reporting about the Amish and Southern Baptists and the Catholic Church all describe communities that rally around perpetrators while shaming and shunning victims. Some common denominators are a patriarchic structure, autocratic leaders who disdain government limits on their authority, secrecy, and an intense pressure to conform. The leader's message to internal critics is, hey, if you go outside the community for help, you will be expelled from it. Now, it can't have been easy for the church members who organized this exhibit. They stood with courage to say that the needs of children sometimes outweigh the interests of communities. So, further discussing this blog... I want to say that the Associated Press article referenced uh, here gives an inkling of the limits of community. And there's a much longer investigative reporting article that is also linked in the blog, which was a result of a year-long investigation in 2020 by Sarah McClure, a reporter for a project sponsored by Cosmopolitan Magazine and a nonprofit called Type Investigations. The kinds of brutal sexual assaults and other abuse of children that McClure documents in the Amish community are disturbing, but really not surprising. The issues that she uncovers map pretty directly onto other communities and institutions that separate from or are otherwise outside the mainstream of society. In this, I actually include contemporary political ideologies on the right and the left, as well as other Christian religious communities that emphasize some kind of purity of doctrine. In addition, there are some elements that apply to other settings that are similar but not the same, uh, including Indian boarding schools, some clan-based societies, and homeschoolers. Now, the latter ones are somewhat different, and I'll talk about them more in a bit. But looking at the religious institutions and organizations, they share common features and beliefs that are predictive of family violence. And that's a category I use that includes domestic assault, cruelty towards animals, and child maltreatment. 
And they include chiefly a common belief that mainstream society has gotten things terribly wrong and that it's necessary either to withdraw from it as far as possible or in the case of what I would characterize as evangelical political ideologies, attempt to radically reform it. A corollary of this perspective is that the laws, the norms, the expectations of mainstream society and government aren't legitimate, and that a member of one of these belief systems is free to or maybe even obligated to ignore them. In the case of religious communities, at least, this leads to a high premium on strong leadership, usually male, and internal unity so that the group can withstand the pressures and, frankly, the temptations of mainstream culture. So this easily justifies suppressing any individual who points out flaws in their leader's strategies or their treatment of others or any moral shortcomings. For individuals who then don't fall in line, that leads to either being ignored or sometimes formally shunned for a period of time and then ultimately ostracized or expelled from the fellowship of the community. Now, this blog provides links to investigative reporting on the Amish, the Southern Baptist Convention, and the Roman Catholic Church, so you can read and get those links there. But getting more information about child sexual and physical abuse in these denominations is also easy to find on the Internet if you want to learn more. What I'd like to focus on with these kinds of societal formations is that they virtually never work out for children. Their inner workings are generally hidden from public view. The members unite to prevent the intervention of authorities. They present a common front when anybody shows up at the door. Any internal critics are generally intimidated into silence, not only by the leaders, but by community members in general. So in this atmosphere, even children's mothers often fail to step in and protect them against abuse. And other members of the community, rather than being concerned for the victim, tend to rally around the perpetrator and pressure the victim into silence. And if that sounds odd to you, again, I suggest that you read a couple of these uh, investigative reporting series. So there are several things to talk about here, but let's start out with the dimensions of religious tyranny. Now, I have a solid, if somewhat rusty, background in Christian theology and doctrine, and I can share without being concerned that I'll get out of my depth that the so-called plain churches, which include, again, the Amish, the Mennonites, the Brethren, the Hutterites, and other descendants of the Anabaptist movement, movement, share certain doctrinal beliefs that will be somewhat obscure to most people even inside the Christian community, let alone, let alone outside of it. And so these include, for example, a belief that infant baptism isn't valid and that a believer must confess her or his faith in Christ as an adult. And doctrines that are somewhat more accessible include a strong belief in nonviolence, along with a belief that true believers are citizens of the kingdom of God and are ultimately not subject to human authorities. So this is the source of the belief, for example, that one should not take an oath in court. And there's also a strong strain of pacifism and generally a feeling that one should not participate in civil government. So while these might not be principles that many people agree with, I would guess that most people would say that they are in their own way admirable and not necessarily harmful to the common good. 
And many would also give the same latitude to principles and guiding uh, documents of the Roman Catholic Church and the Southern Baptist Convention or other religious groups that they don't belong to. People in these churches have gotten bogged down for generations in disputes about doctrinal points around issues like infant baptism, where disputants have consigned each other to damnation over distinctions so fine as to be perplexing to outsiders. And when looking at this, it's easy to get sidetracked, you know, to get lost focusing on these historical theological battles and miss the fundamental issue. The fundamental issue here is that the critical dimension of these groups is not their doctrines, but their belief that they are separate from or in some ways above civil society. And I would say that to the degree that they feel justified in making their own laws and regulations, they open the door to tyranny, which again affects the littlest among us most severely. Now, we have to acknowledge that our democratic society right now is struggling in a number of ways. So just stepping back a click or two, I think it's helpful to remind ourselves that humans have fought for hundreds and probably thousands of years to create political structures that are based on law and on treating individuals equally. And, you know, it's been difficult to get this right. We all know that. But in my view, they are still far better than a closed autocratic society. So how is that justified? Well, the justification for having strong autocratic leaders, again, is they enforce unity that is necessary to keep the, excess, the excesses of society at bay. But it turns out that this structure leads to excesses of its own. The need for the group to survive in what is felt as perceived as a hostile environment results in really strong pressures to conform to the requirements and the leadership of the rulers. And when that elite abuses children, time and again, we have seen that under pressure, even the most sympathetic members of the community will abandon their efforts to protect children and will side with the abuser. So this combination of factors applies to any institution or community that sees itself as separate from and above the law. And we've had a number of conversations, for example, with Hmong millennials who are deeply concerned about abuse within their community. And as you may know, the Hmong are a clan-based society that are led by 17 male clan leaders. The landscape that our millennial friends describe is one in which a child who is being mistreated or badly neglected is brought to the attention of one of these 17 Hmong clan leaders. So the child, the child in their fate is is in his hands. And often the parents are just given a lecture and told not to continue their behavior. Well, you know, of course, good luck with that, right? And the alternative that these millennials face, which is to report child abuse to secular authorities, has a really, really high price. As it has been told to me a number of times, persons who break ranks and report abuse to child protection authorities are told, look, you have chosen the solution of the mainstream culture rather than the Hmong way. Therefore, you no longer are part of this community and you can no longer receive the benefits uh, and continue enjoying relationships with people in it. Pretty high price to pay. You know, I think there are some obvious similarities, not really, you know, mapping one-on-one, -on -one, but similarities in many of these problems where the religious are community-based with the all-too-recent history of Indian boarding schools. They, too, are generally patriarchal. 
even when women run those institutions, they reported up to men. And they were characterized by this kind of evangelical zeal to make everyone conform to certain values and beliefs. And in the case of the boarding schools, much of that zeal was based on religion. And also another common factor was secrecy and an ability to hide children from public view. And we all know the terrible, terrible consequences for children, the horrible abuses that they endured and sometimes which ended in their deaths. So pivoting somewhat, sadly, to contemporary political ideologies, both on the left and the right end of the political spectrum, they also have some features of these closed societies. There's really strong pressure to conform to a very specific doctrine. And as with religious sects or cults, it is really necessary for a member of these groups to hew to a very detailed political doctrine, very specific, and to express one's views in exactly the right terminology. You know, harking back to Christian doctrine, you have to have exactly the right doctrine. Or one is then, if not, to use the religious term, condemned to hell. A secular hell, but hell nonetheless. On the conservative end of the spectrum, there are some similarities, but not complete again, with the homeschooling movement. Certainly, the distrust and perhaps even, let's say, disrespect for government that many homeschoolers express is a strong common theme. I acknowledge that their concerns about the way children are educated may in many cases be legitimate or at least understandable. But that concern has been used to justify not having government regulation on their activities at all. In some states, parents do not even have to notify schools that they are withdrawing their children. And there is often no oversight on the curriculum or any testing to ensure that children are actually learning. Now, if you want to know more about this, look up our blog of July 6, 2021, which describes last year's conference on homeschooling at Harvard Law School. Uh, you can look that up on our website under blogs, and I also have put a link to it in the written script for this podcast, uh, with, and this podcast is available on May 13, 2022. Or you can also visit a very thorough analysis of this by the Child Welfare Monitor, and you can simply go to childwelfaremonitor.org. And you, I recommend you also check out Homeschooling's Invisible Children at hsinvisiblechildren.org. This is a group of homeschoolers that are concerned about the number of child fatalities and about abuse generally within the homeschooling community. So, as with closed religious communities, homeschool children are made to be virtually invisible to the outside world. So, it's a perfect situation for someone who wishes to abuse children or is a predator or a sex trafficker or any other uh, such thing that you can consider. Of course, obviously, not all homeschoolers abuse their children. And given that these children are hidden from society often, there is no way to know whether the rate of maltreatment in these homes is different from society overall. But one of the few specific studies that was done in 2018 by the Connecticut Office of the Child Advocate shows that 36% of children who withdrew their children from public school over a three-year period had a current or recent accepted child protection case. So while it is true that not all homeschoolers abuse their children, the converse is that if a, ch if a parent does abuse the child, homeschooling is a perfect way to avoid oversight by authorities. So again, the ability of children, of adults to hide children from society as a whole, 
allows them the opportunity to abuse children without any constraints. So to me, it's clear that homeschoolers either need to start effectively policing their ranks themselves or allow government to play an appropriate role in that respect for them. Now, moving to the left end of the political spectrum, there's intense political pressure to support family preservation policies and practices, which are the child welfare uh, policies and practices designed to keep families intact, you know, almost no matter what the impact on the children. Parents get chance after chance to address their abuse or drug dependency or whatever is making it difficult for them to parent effectively and their life prospects are seriously diminished or the child is even dead. All of this comes out of a deep political belief that virtually any interference by child protection into BIPOC families is unwarranted and unjust. As one of our frequent contributors points out, a child's timeline is not the same as an adult's timeline. So policies that give parents repeated opportunity over long periods of time to correct their issues aren't really consistent with what the child needs, period. We have to have policies and practices that take into account the timeline that children have so that we do not allow abuse to go on so long uh, that it developmentally delays or damages them. Now, I'd like to pivot once again quickly to talk about the similarities between many of these kinds of situations and the all-too-recent history of child abuse in Indian boarding schools. These institutions, too, were generally patriarchal. They were characterized by an, I would call, evangelical zeal to make everyone conform to certain values and beliefs, and much of that zeal was based on religious institutions. Also, there was secrecy and an ability to hide children from public view. So we all know the consequences for children were horrible abuses, and sometimes they ended in their deaths. So looking at this in terms of contemporary institutions and cultures and ideologies, the net result of all of these pressures is that children are able to be freely abused, sex trafficked, sexually assaulted, and otherwise perked upon with the narrow political or theological doctrines or the community norms as a cover. Going back to the Plain Church exhibition, we suspect that it took an extraordinary amount of courage and determination for the church members at the Plain Church Convention to assemble and display the dresses of children who had been sexually assaulted in the Amish community. And similarly, it's going to take courage and determination to confront the political and cultural barriers that have been so strongly assembled to protect the adults in these various religious uh, and uh, social communities at the expense always of children. And looking at these various communities and institutions overall raises the question for me of why we can generally be in agreement that it was appalling and is appalling and shameful that we as a society countenanced Indian boarding schools while at the same time we're really not very vigilant about what's happening to children who are being homeschooled or who are being killed by extreme family preservation policies and practices or some of the other things we've just discussed. I think in part it's because the politics of it all are just confounding. You know, we try not to be judgmental about belief systems that we ourselves do not hold. We want to allow people to live in ways that may not appeal to us personally. But this mindset, which is liberal not in the political sense but in the philosophical sense, makes it possible to miss the obvious sometimes. So how can we 
correct this? How can we ensure that the interests of children are given appropriate consideration in communities and institutions that are perhaps unwittingly enabling perpetrators of child abuse? I think it helps to acknowledge first that, you know, in my experience at least, overwhelmingly people do want to protect children from extreme harm. I'm talking about the kind of harm that most individuals, even those I talk with on the political fringes, would make it necessary to remove children to a safe place. Given that there is some common ground here, I suggest we simply start making it a habit of looking at political ideologies like family preservation, uh, at interest groups like homeschoolers, and any communities that separate themselves from the mainstream with a child-centric lens. And by that, I mean just to persistently ask questions, persistently question how a particular institution or structure or set of political principles or social policies and procedures work from the child's point of view. I mean, this may seem simplistic, but I believe the discipline of consistently asking questions from a child's point of view whenever discussing public policies or practices in child welfare or the rights and responsibilities of various institutions and communities will in itself go just a long way towards restoring an appropriate balance between the interests of communities and those of children. Great. Well, with that, I want to thank you, Rich, for sharing your time and your expertise on these issues. Again, if you know someone who cares about children, be sure to share this podcast with them. Until next time, this is Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, working to ensure that Minnesota has a child welfare system in which children are safe and can reach their full potential. If you would like to learn more about Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota, please visit us on our website at safepassageforchildren.org. There you can sign up for our email list, read all of our eBrief blog posts, register for our free bi-monthly webinars, watch our featured videos, and more. You can also follow Safe Passage for Children of Minnesota on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, and LinkedIn.